I see it all now. I know that Jesus is the true Messiah. But the hardest thing for me to do right now is to call my children in and go have to say to my son, Son, your father was wrong all these years. Your father was wrong all of these years. I taught you that when Jesus came in the flesh, he was not the true Messiah. I have to tell you now that I was wrong. He was the very son of the living God. Hey everyone, welcome to the House of Bliss podcast, your favorite show you've never heard of and the internet's best kept secret. I have a giant subject and I want to cover an extraordinary amount of ground today. So we are just going to skip the pleasantries and jump right in. I want to talk to you today about a book. It happens to be the most divisive book in human history, but also the best selling. For many, it's a sacred book that's brought hope and healing for thousands of years. For others, it's a paperweight on their hotel nightstand. Wars have been fought over this book. Hollywood movies have been adapted from this book. Nations were born because of this book, and nations were wiped out because of this book. Some have found justification for great evils like slavery in this book, while in these pages others have found the courage and conviction to overthrow great evil. It contains stories, letters, Poems, songs, recipes, manuals, biographies, genealogies, gut-wrenching prayers, laugh-out-loud antics, and captivating romance. Sometimes it's down-to-earth with practical advice for things like cooking and farming. Other times it's impossibly mystical with visions of dragons and ocean-dwelling monsters and talking donkeys. It's not Shrek. No, I want to talk to you today about a book that some followers insist is alive and speaking even today. I want to talk to you about the Bible. But more importantly, I want to talk to you about the adventure of daring to read it. It's a glorious, sometimes treacherous and frustrating journey, and some don't make it through its 1,200 pages. But those who do never return the same. Also, I feel that this is particularly important right now because recently one of my very favorite, actually, I'm going to say my definite favorite worship leader of all time, made a public statement recently that the Mirror Bible is pure deception. Now, I happen to love the Mirror Bible and I have a huge amount of respect for Jeremy Riddle, but I think his comments are symptomatic of the times and era that we live in. And so rather than try to defend the Mirror Bible or, or say anything really directly to Jeremy Riddle, I think it's better if we just talk about the spiritual climate that causes us to attack each other like that. Friends, I want to talk to you about how we read the Bible, not just personally, but as a community of faith. This episode was going to just be how to read the Bible, but then I realized that what we read is inseparable from how we relate to each other. And so we're going to take a much more substantial journey today. My friends, there's a time to think and there's a time to drink. And this is definitely going to be one of those ones you're going to want your thinking cap on for because we're going to cover so much info. So honestly, I would recommend you grab a notebook even. I think that would help you. And 
definitely some more coffee. There's a famous scripture that says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is a covenant, not written of laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under this new covenant, the Spirit gives life. So right off the bat, what we have to understand is that what makes this book so special is not its history, its genealogies, letters, and commandments. It's that it puts you in contact with the very life-giving Spirit of God Himself. However, it is possible to miss this. So Jesus often chewed out the fancy religious leaders of his day because though they had the Jewish Bible memorized, they missed the point entirely when he was staring them in the face. Jesus said that all of the ancient Jewish scriptures could be summed up in two commands. So say it with me if you know it. Love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just a quick note on that, you can also add the word strength to that list. So the point of the Bible is that you would encounter God in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, and strength, and that this this love would bubble up and spill out into the world around you. This has to be the starting place of approaching the Bible. God is so vast, so unsearchable, that it truly takes each of these components to to even try to comprehend Him. We can't compartmentalize ourselves when we come to the text. We have to let grace speak to and transform our entire selves. So for example, someone can have all of the historical context, triple PhDs in Greek and Hebrew, and while they're on their way to a grand academic award ceremony, they could stroll through a homeless camp completely oblivious and uh, unaffected by the desperation and ruin of their fellow humans. So this person might love God with their mind, but they have yet to let Jesus encounter their heart and strength because their biblical theory isn't taking on flesh. Um, Or somebody could be a deeply sensitive prophetic type, uh, you know, knowing exactly what's going on with the times and seasons. They could see 333 every time they look at the clock, but they could still be entirely ignorant of the gospel. They could be trying to foolishly detach from earth and daily life so they can focus on heaven, totally oblivious to the fact that heaven is here. So this would be someone who loves God in their soul, but is suspicious of the mind. Your spirit and mind, they're not in competition. They're actually two parts of the same whole. And so you can have an educated discussion about first century culture and get sucked out of your body to dance with angels every morning. And there might even be folks out there who know the scriptures inside and out. They feed the homeless every Sunday, but they harbor bitterness towards those charismatic brothers and sisters. You know, they think people who fall on the floor and speak in tongues are uneducated, demon-possessed snake handlers. And those would be people who have not yet encountered the Lord in their spirit, but have confined him to intellectual understanding or, or even just perhaps made this whole thing into a list of commands to follow. And so let me just break this down before we really dive in. This is a question to ask yourself. If your Bible reading isn't transforming and expanding your mind, heart, strength, and spirit with the love of God, 
If your Bible reading isn't causing you to be filled with affection and compassion for humanity, then something isn't right. And so with that core of bringing our whole selves to the text, I want to take a look at three mistakes that we Western readers often make, and then I want to talk about how we can learn from a more Jewish Eastern mindset. Number one, we try to make the Bible bow to our intellect. In the 18th century, human history experienced the Age of Enlightenment. And with that came this deeply embedded cultural notion that there is nothing greater than logic and reason. That anything that we don't understand now will eventually be understood and any problem we face will eventually be subdued by innovation. To quote the great Esquelito from Nacho Libre, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Don't get me wrong, a lot of good has come from this period. I love science. Podcasting exists because of science. But on the negative end, the worship of logic and reason above God has thoroughly infected even the church and caused a number of pretty serious issues in how we interpret the Bible. For one, this is where liberal scholarship comes into play. This would be those who try to erase the supernatural elements of the Bible and just boil everything down to ethics and psychology. Folks who say the Red Sea, the resurrection are all just clever archetypal stories and allegories. I actually once had a discussion with a former pastor who he was going down that road and he ended up losing his faith. And so he was trying to tell me that, well, Jesus didn't really raise dead bodies. They were just comatose. And I'm like, well... (laughs) If you can show me an individual who can instantaneously wake someone out of a coma by calling their name, then maybe I will entertain that idea. But it also, on the other side, creates a whole different issue of literalism. So for a lot of Christians, the need for everything to make sense causes them uh, to try to bend the Bible to their rules. The Bible ceases to be a a mystical collection of letters and family history and poems and instead becomes more like an answer book or a manual or a textbook or even part of their own scientific conquest. People people will develop this, this deep need to defend the Bible on the battlefield of intellect. So let's take Genesis, for instance. Was the earth created in six days or six trillion days? What if I told you that the ancient Hebrews weren't asking these questions? The original audience wasn't concerned so much with how God created the world or when God created the world. Genesis wasn't trying to answer a scientific question. It was answering a theological question. Who made this? Not how, not when, but who and why? Why is it here? And so, What you've got to understand is there were other creation stories circulating in their day that had a lot of similar elements to Genesis. Um, But those stories unanimously agreed that the earth was born out of violence and chaos, that life was ultimately the product of some number of gods at war with each other. But then Genesis came along with this radical idea that there is one God who made everything out of love and joy and with purpose with his own hands and breath like an artist. And so I'm not saying that it is or isn't literal. We could spend months on that question. But, But my point here 
is that there are entire ministries built on that uniquely modern Western question of how. And in my opinion, the more time you spend trying to wrench modern answers out of pre-modern text, the less you'll be affected by the real point of the story. It's like my dear old dad, Pastor Jeff, taught me that the Bible is a lot like a frog. There are those who want to understand it, so they study it, dissect it, take it apart, and try to get all the facts. The only problem is they killed the frog. On the other hand, there are those who spend time with the frog, watch it eat, watch it jump. They interact with the frog. I don't know, they might even lick the frog. But while I do believe there are real, intellectually solid reasons to believe in Jesus Christ, we can't make the Bible our lifeless science experiment or our history textbook. Number two, individualism. It's just me and my Bible. The Holy Spirit will guide me and I don't need you or anyone else. Brian Zahn talks about how as a young boy, he pleaded with God to understand the book of Revelation. So after praying really hard, he opened it up again, just fully expecting to understand. But of course, when he opened it, he was just as confused. It wasn't until years later that he realized that God had indeed faithfully answered his prayer but it wasn't simply zapped into his head. It took years of study and learning and wrestling and prayer. And I feel like we do this all the time in evangelical Christianity. We just read the Bible like it's some kind of fortune cookie. We just think every word is directly written to us like a love letter. And if we just read two lines a day from any old spot, bam, God's going to speak to us. And that's how the Bible works. Okay. The problem is... We then ignore the fact that the Bible was written in a real time, in a real place, to real people, going through real things. The Bible isn't helpful because it's written to us. Like, I can be inspired by a movie even though the movie's not about me. But the Bible is helpful because by understanding their story and journey with God, we can begin to make sense of our journey and story. Now, not just their journey, but how that journey eventually unfolded into church history as well. You see, until the printing press, the only way to hear the Bible was in groups or gatherings, in conversation, in family. And we're also part of a heavenly family, the saints that have gone before us, not just the apostles, but people like Irenaeus and Athanasius who labored intensely to help us understand and preserve this mysterious faith of ours. And so it's pure arrogance to dismiss our place in that family line and just opt for what my Bible says mentality. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am so thankful for the gift of a Bible that I can read by myself. But we have to be aware that it wasn't meant to be that way. Paul even wrote, please read my letters to the church. He didn't say, let everyone take home a copy and come to their own private conclusions, regardless of their level of education. This story is a family story. All right, so the last one here, and brace yourself because this is going to be a tough one to swallow is this idea of oversimplifying the Bible. Every single one of us is building a mental file cabinet when it comes to the Bible. This cabinet is filled with memories, sermons, personal experience, cultural conditioning. It's always there, just filed away in our subconscious. 
Now, certain words like rapture or hell cause these feelings and emotions and images and movies and pictures and understandings to rise up and color our reading of the text, for better or for worse. Well, I just read the Bible. No, you don't. Because no one is immune from this. It's inescapable. And you don't know what you don't know. The only thing you can do is just recognize this fact and try to place yourself in the mind of early Christians because they had file cabinets too. If you can understand what they thought about when they read certain words, you can begin to understand what the Bible is actually saying. Or people will say, well, just give me the simple gospel. So one time I posted on Facebook uh, about some scholars that I enjoy listening to, and someone told me not to listen to scholars because they are given over to the spirit of the age, whatever that means. And so I agree, people can overcomplicate simple things. But most often, I find that people just want to defend their right to be lazy. They don't want to have to Google big words like, Functional subordination among the tripersonal unified essence of divinity. <laughs> God is massive, and he will frequently blow your mind. <laughs> so in that sense, it takes mental work to know God. So instead of trying to break the vast, sweeping, glorious message of the gospel into bite-sized Sunday school chunks— Sometimes you just have to look at it and be changed without fully understanding how that's happening. It's like this. Would you rather stand in awe of the majesty of the Grand Canyon or just buy little chunks of it at the gift shop? So on some level, I do understand the fear that if we get too intellectual, the gospel becomes um, just a message for those with elite understanding. Or even worse, it just gets reduced to dry philosophical theories. I think that's a valid point, but the problem is that's just not how Jesus or any other rabbi taught. To follow Jesus means to literally live life with him, learn from him constantly, and be saturated in his teachings. Yes, the simple can grasp this message. Children can grasp this message, but it takes a lifetime of learning to really develop it because it's always unfolding into more and more and more revelation. You know, a child can recognize that an expensive seared steak tastes amazing, but I wouldn't give that child a blowtorch. If that child wants to become a chef, they would need to be willing to learn the complexities of culinary art and science. And so on that note, here's an excellent, excellent quote from my favorite scholar, N.T. Wright. And this guy has an amazing... Uh, like British voice. He kind of reminds me of Christopher Lee, the actor, if you know who that is. I'm not even going to try to replicate that here. So, but he says this, there are many Christians who are frightened of history because they've been told about some scholars in this century or the previous ones who have said, oh, we, the historians will show you that Jesus was just a good Jewish boy would have been horrified that a church was founded in his name. Or we, the historians will show you that Paul was just a muddled Jew who got it all wrong, etc., etc. But what I want to say is actually history, as it properly should be, is about learning to think into the minds of people who think differently to ourselves. The past, as they say, is a foreign country, and they do things differently. The past, 
particularly of the first century, is where a young prophet called Jesus of Nazareth came from Galilee saying, it's time for God to become king. And within 30 to 40 years, some of his followers began saying extraordinary things like he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, they were saying that no one has seen God. So if we want to know who God is, we have to know who Jesus is. Well, how do we know who Jesus is? Well, we have these Gospels, and we have them within first century history. So they mean what they mean in that world. So if we want to know who God is, we have to know who Jesus is. If we want to know who Jesus is, we have to be willing to make the pilgrimage back to the first century. And so at this point, some of you are bound to be thinking, well, are you saying that in order to be a Christian, you have to read Plato or Aristotle? No, that might help or it might not actually, but you have to be prepared to do the work of thinking into what the New Testament means in its context. Only so will you understand the basic things like what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand or what Paul meant in his extraordinary teachings about Jesus, God, the world, salvation, etc. These were explicitly first century things, end quote. So another thing that irks me is when people say, well, the Bible clearly says, okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I would be willing to bet money that not a single one of you has read the Bible. Okay, maybe one or two of you listening, but the rest of us have actually never read the Bible. We have read translations of the Bible, and this is a really big deal. The reason there are currently 450 English translations is precisely because it's not as cut and dried as you might think it is. Each of these translations usually has an entire team of people working on it, and many of them are genuinely doing their best to convey the text as accurately as they can. You know, despite all the conspiracy accusations from the King James only people. But the problems come because English is a relatively clumsy language. Like take the word love, for instance. We all say things like, I love my wife. I love tacos. I love my dog. And I love my Jesus. In Greek, though, they would actually have a different word for each one of those. And so Greek and Hebrew are immensely complicated language and stuffing them into clumsy old English isn't always the easy task you might think it is. And so that's why if you translate a phrase like Jesus loves you, well, that might be technically literally correct, but it's also kind of flat, isn't it? And so that's why some translators will try to, you know, they'll go for the paraphrase route and say something like the affection of God burns for you. Which one carries more emotional weight? So it's not about correct versus incorrect. It's about trying to convey different layers of correct. So my last point on this before we move on is language changes drastically over time. Okay, so here's here's a hilarious example I found on mentalfloss.com about the word nice. It says in this article, a few centuries ago, if a gentleman called a lady nice, she might not know whether to flutter her fan or slap his face. Because nice entered English through the, the, the classical Latin phrase, necius, meaning ignorant. From then, it wandered off every which way. From the 1300s through the 1600s, it meant silly, foolish, or ignorant. But during that same time period, though, 
It was used with all sorts of unrelated or even contradictory meanings like showy and ostentatious or elegant and refined. It could mean particular in matters of reputation or conduct or wanton, licentious, cowardly, unmanly, effeminate, slothful, lazy, sluggish. And so by the 1500s, nice came to mean meticulous, attentive, sharp, or making precise distinctions. By the 18th century, it acquired its current and somewhat bland meaning of agreeable and pleasant, but other meanings just kind of hung on there to keep things interesting. Now, I know that I just hit you with a lot, but my point here is, yes, the Bible is simple enough that a child can grasp it, but it is also so complex that it will take you a lifetime of learning and beyond to unpack it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to take a walk on the Jewish side of the equation, a more Eastern way of looking at the Bible, which I have found to be a lot more healthy. ask of you for the next hour to just sit there with an open heart and open mind. Your theology may be changed. And the biggest person in the world is that somebody will say, I was wrong. All right. So after hearing all of that, the question then becomes, how do we read the Bible? And all those things I mentioned, like I've had this kind of gut level discomfort for how American church people talk about the Bible for a long time. So if you feel that, you're in good company here. But it wasn't until I started diving into understanding Jewish thought that I began to feel much more at home. Now, some are probably going to argue that, well, the Jews missed the coming of the Messiah. So can we really learn from these ways of thinking as Christians? And I would say, absolutely. Christianity ultimately grew up out of the soil of Judaism. So understanding how they think about things in a lot of ways is going to help us understand why the Bible was written in the way that it was. It is, after all, remember this, an Eastern religion. A lot of times people go, well, I don't know. That just sounds like Eastern religion. Uh, Well, yeah, this actually came from the Middle East. (laughs) So understanding how to think outside of our Western lenses is super valuable. They have this great saying in Judaism. One famous rabbi said, there are 70 faces to the Torah. Turn it around and around for everything is in it. The Bible is so vast and multifaceted. Even the most brilliant minds couldn't exhaust the meaning of its pages in a thousand lifetimes. And as image bearers, each of us carries a unique piece of the divine image that nobody else has. And as such, we, we, you and I tend to experience God a bit differently from each other. I love that idea of the 70 faces because it also points to the idea of generations. Because each generation has something to add to the ongoing, ever-unfolding understanding of Revelation. I don't mean to the words themselves, but I mean that the scripture, it takes on new life with each passing generation. And this is why I think Paul prays that we would have the power to comprehend with all the saints the love of God, which is beyond all comprehension. So first he's saying, it's so big that you need supernatural power to grasp it. 
and you also need all of the saints together. So there might be a side of God's nature that you gravitate towards. You can't unsee it. It leaps out at you in every chapter. You know, maybe it's the holiness of God. Everything you read boils down to the holiness of God. And that is amazing. But what you have to understand is there are other people who are seeing God differently, and that's not bad. If you really want to understand the Bible, you're going to have to get used to shifting your paradigms and perspectives. So maybe you've been taught all your life that Catholics are hopelessly deceived and should be avoided at all costs. But a few years ago, when I started diving into church fathers and church history, I started to realize that our Catholic and Orthodox cousins have some beautiful and rich perspectives to offer that I I had just never been exposed to. And so don't tell anybody, but I started swimming outside of my stream and finding that I'm actually a lot better off because of it. I actually read a, a book from a Catholic guy earlier this year about covenant, and it totally blew my mind. So instead of writing them off because of my disagreements, and believe me, I do have plenty of those, I started to realize that if I really want to know God, I've got to be willing to get outside of my own Christian club, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Mennonite, Baptist, Messianic Jews, Anglican, all of them have a piece of the puzzle that is worth celebrating and discovering. And it is possible to do that without losing my own core convictions. And so this brings me to a saying that they have in Judaism. I want you to say this with me. It's Elu Ve'elu. Okay, Elu Ve'elu. And it essentially means both these and those. So as the story goes, two of the most famous rabbis were fighting each other fiercely over legal rulings. And all of a sudden, a voice came booming from heaven saying, both these and those are true. And so what the saying is doing is kind of calling you to a sense of charity when debating interpretations of the Bible. It's not a cop out saying, well, everything is true. No, there's definitely some bad ideas out there that can cause real harm and need to be confronted swiftly. But it is a humble recognition that when we talk about God, who really has the full perspective? So when you disagree with someone, instead of separating yourselves or attacking them or starting a new denomination or worse, a comment war on Facebook, you can just say, wow, that's a valuable perspective. But I don't think it's the full truth. I think there's something you might be missing. And so the Jewish tradition is filled with writings around this kind of dialogue and debate, which are treated as sacred, because for them, it's not always the theological conclusions, but the discussion itself that is sacred. So every time I see a super divisive or negative Facebook comment, I just be, I think to myself, what if we all started to just think a little bit more Jewishly here? That in wrestling and working our way through difficult things together, we actually are finding ourselves in a sacred dance of discovery. When someone disagrees with me, you will often see me saying, hey, thank you so much for sharing your valuable insight. Uh, There's probably something there that I have yet to discover, but I think you might be missing this. And then I'll give my response. That's Elu Ve'elu. Again, it's not anything goes. But it is humility and diversity within unity. 
The thing is, I see a lot of people online that I even agree with. I, I actually agree with what they're saying, but they're so vicious or just like cocky about how they treat other Christians. So before we jump on our Facebook soapboxes and attack our fellow brothers and sisters, why don't we just keep that in our minds? Elu va elu. I haven't seen that. You might be right. Have you thought about this? Alrighty. Hey, if you made it this far, thank you. You rock. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, this is where you're really going to want your notebook because I'm actually going to start talking about how I pick up my Bible, the questions I ask, the resources I use. How do you read the Bible with this kind of thing in mind from a more Jewish point of view? I'll see you in a bit. Welcome back, everyone. The last thing I want to do here today is I want to talk to you about the four levels of Jewish interpretation of Scripture. So going back to that 70 faces idea, these levels, these levels are here because they're speaking to the idea that there could be multiple layers of meaning that coexist simultaneously in any given verse. If you start to understand that different ideas about a verse could all be true at the same time, just on different levels, you can have a much better sense of elu elu. You could just realize like, oh, this person is seeing things on this level and I'm seeing things on this level. So I'm going to break this down, and then I'm going to give some practical insight into how to engage with each one. But seriously, it's like once you see this, and then you see people fighting on Facebook, you start to go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this person is much more of a this type of thinker, and this person is much more like this. So grab your notebook, write these down. These are the four levels. Number one, and I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher the Hebrew pronunciation, I'm sure, but it is what it is. Number one. Peshat. That would be the plain, historical, face value meaning of a text. Number two is the remez, which is the allegorical or hinted meaning in the text. Number three is the drash. Okay, and this is what the established authorities, sages, wise leaders in the church have taught. Okay, for, for the Jews, that would be their midrash. And then number four is sod which is the mystical or esoteric mystery meaning. That would be like the kinds of things that you can only know if the Holy Spirit shows you. Interestingly, if you take the initials of these four categories, they form the acronym PARDES, which means garden in Hebrew. And this is a reference to how knowing the word of God places man back in the garden of Eden. I love that. So let's get real practical. Number one, the Peshat or the plain meaning. So in Jewish thought, hear me on this. This is really important for a lot of charismatic people to understand is that the Jewish leaders think of this as the most important level. Now, the other levels might expand on this, but they will not contradict it. So this level is not, what does this mean to me? This, this level is, what did this text mean to the people reading it? 
And thankfully, there are loads of resources available on this. You've got Blue Letter Bible, Bible Hub, Logos Bible Software. And if you want to get into some more, uh, you know, just Jewish sort of ideas, there's HebrewForChristians.org and there's MyJewishLearning.org. But the best way to dive in is to begin asking questions, questions, and more questions. So when you want to understand a passage, your best friends are going to be a concordance, an ancient Greek or Hebrew dictionary, uh, and commentaries. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you seven questions. There's obviously a ton more, but these are seven of my favorite questions for whenever I'm reading a passage. Okay, number one, is this a quote of some kind? So a lot of times the Bible is actually quoting other ancient texts like the book of Enoch. And it's doing that because it's assuming that you, the reader, have already read it. I think of it like going back to the idea of a file cabinet. I assume most of you know what I'm talking about when I say the Second Amendment, right? That's the right of Americans to bear arms. Okay, I don't have to walk around quoting, you know, we have the right to a militia and bear arms. I could just say as a shorthand, Second Amendment, and most of you know what I'm talking about already. Well, there are actually tons of instances of this in the Bible. There, there, like I said, there's the book of Enoch in there. There's other scriptures being quoted. There's even quotes of stuff like ancient Greek medical texts in the New Testament. And so if you come across something kind of puzzling, or it, it sounds like he's talking to you like, you're, like you should be in the know, um, just try digging around to see if this is actually a quote or a reference to something else. Okay, number two, where did this take place and what else happened around it in history? So think, so uh, locations are really important. Um, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Okay, well, what else happened in the Jordan River? Or Jesus went to Mount Hermon. Okay, well, why did he go to Mount Hermon? What else happened at Mount Hermon? And that's where you'd want a concordance. You just look it up. You can see all the spots in scripture that it appears. Uh, number three. Are their names mentioned? What do the names mean and who, what do they signify? Number four, are there any actions or symbols involved? For instance, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, well, fig trees represented religious Jewish authority. So by standing in the temple and giving a rant that it was going to be destroyed and then immediately going outside and cursing a fig tree, Jesus was actually making an extremely powerful statement against the Pharisees. So you miss that kind of stuff if you don't know, if you don't think to ask. Number five, does the date matter? So remember, the Bible happened in a real time, in a real place, alongside real other events. So remember that story where Jesus sent legion into the pigs? Well, did you know that Jesus was in an area with several legions of Roman soldiers? And at one point in, uh, in the recent history, legions of Roman soldiers were drowning Jewish rebels in the very same sea that the pigs drowned in. Furthermore, legions in Roman culture were symbolized by pigs. So by sending the demons named legion into pigs and having them drown... Whew, that's a pretty powerful picture. So you can ask yourself, what is the significance of the history around this? Number five, is this a subversion of something else? Uh, like Jesus in the fig tree again. 
Or oftentimes Jesus' words, actions, and parables were clever twists on something that already existed. Why did Jesus go walking through a field on the Shabbat and grab a bit of grain? And why did that make the Pharisees angry? These are good questions. Just just remember this. This is, this is like a little tip that'll help you forever. There is, I'm going to say almost because maybe there are a few, but there is no detail too small or too insignificant in the Bible. If you have a question, look it up. Number six, is there a lot of repetitioning happening? Or is there a lot of repetition happening? Okay, why? Why is it repeating this phrase over and over again? There's a lot of good you could find on your own with that. And lastly, are there any word pictures happening in, in, in the names? Like if you look at Greek or Hebrew, like I said, they're very, um, they're very nuanced languages. So for example, when Abram became Abraham, Abraham means father of many nations. But in the original language of Hebrew, it also contains this word picture of drizzling rain. So his name wasn't just, it wasn't just that he was going around as a childless man, introducing himself as father of many, but when he spoke those words in Hebrew, it would conjure up an image of having as many descendants as drizzling and falling rain. And you could thank the Mirror Bible for helping me understand that. All right, so that's it on the first level. If you start with just those questions, you will find all kinds of stuff. But let's move on to number two, which is the hidden meaning. You can find some amazing things when you pay attention to numbers in the Bible. For instance, the number seven contains all sorts of meaning about covenant and Sabbath. So start researching those numbers. This level also is talking about allegorical meanings like how if you pay, if you really pay attention to the connections in the gospel to Exodus, you can see that they are portraying Jesus as a kind of new Moses for a new Exodus into a new promised land. Or how about the Song of Solomon? It isn't just a sexy sex book about marriage, but it can also be understood as an allegory of Christ in the church, or if you're a Jew of Yahweh pursuing Israel. And if you go down a lot of the same uh, resource avenues that I mentioned earlier, you can find some of those things. All right, next is the drush. This would be this would be the this would be like the historical or traditional literature around a thing. Um, it's not the same as cultural context. It's more like the stories that develop within history around the text that kind of fill it out. So you, these are things that you're not going to find in the Bible itself, but they've been maintained as true throughout history from reliable sources. So for example, the Jewish people, they have years of these conversations called Midrash. So when I was doing my episode about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible doesn't really say a whole lot about what they were doing. But if you read the Talmud, there's all kinds of legends about what it was like to live in Sodom and why God would have been so angry, like the kind of wickedness that they were up to. Um, and we as Christians, we have our own history like that. So for instance, the fact that, well, everybody knows Peter wanted to be crucified upside down because he, you know, he didn't want to be, he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same way as his savior. Well, that's not in the Bible, but it is a part of church history. Or how Paul was, you know, we know Paul was beheaded in Rome shortly after the book of Acts. 
There's a ton of gold to be found in reading church fathers like Athanasius and Augustine, Irenaeus, Gregory of Nyssa, and more. Because these guys were only just, just a few short generations removed from the apostles themselves. And so when you, when you read them, you can get some really unique insight and understanding into passages that we just totally miss in our day. And of course, similarly, if you're looking into Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox stuff, um, you have the official positions of the church that help to bring clarity to certain truths. Now, I'm not a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox, but I will say it is kind of cool how throughout the long, you know, multi-century histories of those branches of the church, they have kind of their own interpretations that have been mostly maintained throughout this entire time. And so I say it's at least valuable. And lastly, we're almost done here, is we have the sowed, or that would be like the mystical. So that's going to be like the spiritual interpretations of scripture. And this is by far the most used in the charismatic church. So, so when God shows you something about a text directly, like in a vision or a dream or an encounter, um, like I've even had times where I've gone out of my body in the spirit and into the words themselves like they were a door. This is the spiritual and intuitive gut level of understanding. So people love to attack charismatics because, you know, prophetic people will sometimes take things out of context. But what you have to understand is that's, I don't think that's entirely incorrect. Because what you've got to understand is that God is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. And so if you take the book of Revelation, for instance, this book is almost, uh, it's I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say 99% sure. I am 99% sure that this book is not about helicopters, the United Nations, Bill Gates, microchip implants, and whatever the heck else Jim Baker is saying. It is, however, describing real historical events that have already come to pass. But the Word of God is alive and active, and it's mystical and in some mysterious way, it can still be speaking of things to come as well. So as long as you don't ditch the Peshat or the plain level of understanding, I think you can get some amazing insight into what God is doing in the here and now through these sorts of mystical readings of the text. Once again, I mean, that's, that's, that's confounding to the intellect, but that doesn't make it wrong. It's just another mystically true level of meaning in God's multifaceted word. And now, my friends, here's where we're going to end today. At the end of the day, <laughs> we are all going to have disagreements. All of us are going to be right and all of us are going to be wrong sometimes. It is just part of the grand adventure. But at the end of the day, love and unity need to be our central pursuits. Over a thousand years ago, a series of meetings occurred where some of the brightest and sharpest minds in Christianity got together. They realized that there were so many conflicting ideas floating around about Jesus. You know, was he God or was he an ascended human? Was he just a spiritual Messiah? What about the Trinity? And so, realizing that there's a rich and diverse chorus of opinions... These guys wrestle to figure out, okay, what are the most basic, essential building blocks of our faith? And so they crafted the creeds. 
and these have been read in churches for centuries. They're a statement of what unites us. And they're intentionally without a whole lot of commentary or detail, which allows for diversity within that unity. So whether you're pre-trib or post-trib or amillennial or a diehard Left Behind fan, you and I can still stand together and proclaim that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so, Jeremy Riddle, if you ever hear this, I love you, my brother. And even though I strongly disagree with your assessment of the Mirror Bible, I do value your unique perspective. And I acknowledge the possibility that you are seeing something that I'm not seeing. But at the end of the day, I hope you and I can continue to worship together and confess these truths. So I'm going to put this in the show notes. I'd like you to read along. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell and on the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Thanks for listening, guys. Shalom. Thank you so much for listening to the House of Bliss podcast. If you'd like to support this ministry, it is super easy to do so. All you've got to do is go down and hit the link in the description, visit our Patreon page, and sign up. Any amount of monthly giving is going to unlock all kinds of extras and behind-the-scenes rewards. Another quick and easy way you can support us is you can just give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Each and every one of those goes a long way. I'm praying that God seals everything you heard today in your heart and that you stay rooted and grounded in His everlasting love. Thanks again. God bless.